Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Well, uh, like Kathy said, we're starting a new sermon series today. And like the slide above me says, it's called Practicing the Way of Jesus. I'm excited to do this with you this month. You've got me all month. This week and the next three are all me, and I'm really excited. It's the first time I've done a whole series here at New Day. Um, One of the other reasons I'm really excited about this series is because it continues the journey we've been on as a church in 2022. Do you remember what we talked about in January? Shout it out if you do. Yeah, reading the Bible, understanding Scripture. Good. What did we talk about in February? Healthy heart. Yeah, we said, all right, we understand the Bible better. Now let's get it into our inner world of our heart um, and be transformed by it. And so this month, we're going to continue that transformation um, by putting it into practice, by practicing the way of Jesus. Did you know that you become what you practice? Some of you said yes. (laughs) So if we want to be like this guy on the slide, standing on a mountaintop, fit and strong, we have to practice hiking up steep mountain trails. You know, we would have to practice reading a map and navigating, staying properly hydrated, you know, planning such an expedition. You don't just show up and climb a mountain as it turns out. You have to train for it. So you practice at lower elevations, you know, shorter distances, and you kind of build up to it. Eventually, you can become the kind of person who can go climb a mountain like this guy on the slide above me. Let me give you a personal example. So early in our marriage, Marilee and I had a really, really important discussion. It was something we just had to get right in our lives, you know, and the conversation got a little deeper, a little deeper, until I said with passion in my voice, Marilee, I just really want to be able to look down at my shoes and feel like I could take off for a mountain hike at any moment. Okay, so maybe that's not super important, like I built it up. <laughs> maybe that's a lower level of importance. You guys are like, this guy is nuts. Why does that matter to him? Um, <laughs> it's a little goofy, but I had this real desire at that stage in my life, you know, to like test myself, go out and backpack. I was just taking up backpacking, you know. I wanted to go out into the wild get away from the monotony of work and see if I had what it takes to like survive in the wilderness, that kind of thing. You know, break loose um, from adulting and work and all the regular responsibilities. And I wanted access to that world wrapped around my toes at all times. David, could you turn me down just a little? I hear a little ringing, at least in my ear. So Marilee and I made a decision. We bought Merrill shoes. They were very outdoorsy, very hikey. And uh, we bought them and they were just perfect. But if I'm honest with you, the shoes were triggering a fantasy more than supporting my reality. My first real backpacking trip was with a group of guys, and I froze and shivered all night long. We walked till about lunchtime, and then the guys looked at me doing that and said, we better turn back. I think Bill's going to get hypothermia. Uh, Good looking out, guys. I appreciate it. Let me see Matt Ballmer say thanks for helping Bill survive. Um, But the point is, I didn't have any practice at the necessary skills to be a backpacker. You know, it was more a wish than a reality. But I kept going on trips with Matt and some some other friends, and I learned from them. 
I saw what they did. I learned how to cook on a backcountry stove. I learned how to pack the right clothes, <laughs> how to plan a trip at a time when I wouldn't freeze. You know, the things you need to do to be a backpacker. Eventually, I took Merrily on a really cool, fun anniversary trip to the Manistee River, and we, we backpacked. It was awesome. Later, I took Micah on a trip to Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore, and we did the whole backpack cookout in the wilderness thing. It was great. So eventually, my practice allowed me to do something I couldn't do before. See how that works? So our series is called Practicing the Way of Jesus. It's really personal for me. Um, what I'm going to talk to you, what I'm going to talk to you about this month is stuff that I have been learning to implement in my life um, based on where I was at over like the last year or so. So this one's been brewing for like 300 and whatever days. <laughs> um, no wonder I'm excited about it. We're going to talk today about why we need practice. We're going to talk about a little bit of a biblical framework for it as well. And then in the weeks to come, we'll talk about specific godly practices you can build into your life um, that will help you transform yourself. We're going to talk about practices that can help you take your destiny and calling in the Lord and pull them down into reality. Raise your hand if you're interested in getting that reality in your life. All right, you're with me. Good. So I'm specifically not talking about any specific godly practices today. If you were hoping for that and you thought that was the buildup, just adjust for a minute, okay? Adjusting, recalculating, recalculating your GPS of where we're going today. Today, I want to introduce to you this idea, and I want you to take this week to evaluate your life and your current set of practices, all right? It's a where are we at week, where we check that out with the Lord. We become what we practice. So what are we currently becoming and what's causing us to get there? Are your current practices causing you to drift away from God? It's a question we're going to ask this week. Are your current practices hollowing out your soul? That doesn't sound good. <laughs> it's worth asking the question and addressing it if it's true. Are our current practices draining our ability to give God attention? <clears throat> All right, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking and he says, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. That's the person who puts Jesus' words into practice. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. Yes, thank you. The rain came, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and what happened to it? What happened to it? Come on. You guys read your Bible. You're sandbagging me. What happened? It fell with a great crash. So Jesus urges his followers to put into practice what they heard him teach, to do something with what they learned from Jesus. Jesus is inviting us to become an embodiment of his teachings. Little walking examples of the Jesus way of life. Are you getting that? Little walking examples of the Jesus way of life. That's the invitation. He says if we do this, we'll build a life that can stand the tests and trials to come. But the call of Jesus is even more than that. It's not only 
embody his teachings, but it's also something deeper. In Mark chapter 10, we read it this week in our Bible reading plan. I think it was Monday, if I remember right. So if you're tracking with us in the Bible in one year reading plan, you read this this week. But uh, a young, uh, a man comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him a list of some of the Ten Commandments. And the guy says, yep, check. Done that since I was young. And Jesus is like, awesome, good job. Now here's the next invitation. Set aside your way of life and come follow me. You see what Jesus was doing there? It was the next level beyond doing the commandments, beyond practicing the teachings, but it was come follow me. It's the same invitation that Jesus gave to Peter and Andrew and James and John. Come be my disciple. Come live with me. Walk with me. Do what I do. Let's hang out. Let's hang out, bro. (laughs) It's an awesome invitation, isn't it? He invites him to come learn the Jesus way. And even more than that, learn that Jesus is the way. In John 14, 6, Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So we're getting two messages from Jesus in these passages. One, practice my teachings. And two, come follow me and learn my way up close and personal. In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer writes, If you want to experience the life of Jesus, you have to adopt the lifestyle of Jesus. The man in Mark chapter 10 couldn't have the eternal life of Jesus without adopting the lifestyle of Jesus. He went away sad, if you remember the end of the story. He wasn't willing to put away his way of life and enter into Jesus' way of life. I don't want you to be sad. I don't want you to go away sad. I want you to find the way of Jesus and walk with him. In John chapter 15, Jesus said, in summary, (laughs) I'm the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you'll be fruitful. I love you like the Father loves you. Abide in my love. Jesus wants us to live a life connected to him. His lifestyle. He wants us to abide in it. That means live in it. Live right there in connection with him. So, um, I'm going to reference that book a lot, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. It was a big part of the beginning of my journey about a year ago. Um, And uh, let me give you a picture of a grapevine. There it is. So John Mark Homer picks up the vine analogy from John 15 in his book when he talks about scheduling time for practicing the way of Jesus. So look at the grapevine on the slide that I've got here for you and look at that thing that's holding it up. It's called a trellis. That's the structure that supports a grapevine. Now we're ready for the quote. He says, What a trellis is to a vine, practices are to abiding. It's a structure, a schedule, and a set of practices to set up abiding as the central pursuit of your life. It's a way to organize all of your life around the practice of the presence of God. If a vine doesn't have a trellis, it will die. And if your life with Jesus doesn't have some kind of structure to facilitate health and growth, it will wither away. Following Jesus has to make it onto your schedule and into your practices, or it will simply never happen. Here's the rub, he says. Most of us are too busy to follow Jesus. (laughs) Pierce to the heart. 
like I said, this is a personal journey for me. I'm not a man of finished work in front of you. I'm in progress. And this is a good word for us. <laughs> it's been a good word for me. I'm working on it, and I want to bring you along with me in this journey. What a challenge from John Mark Comer. What a challenge from Jesus, just like he gave to the rich man in Mark 10. It's a much-needed challenge in our suburban American way of looking at Christianity, isn't it? We're challenged and invited at the same time. Will we make time for Jesus? Will we schedule time in our week to practice his way? He's inviting each of us. Come, follow me, and abide. We become what we practice. Dallas Willard said, The aim of practices is the transformation of the total state of the soul and the renewal of the whole person. Richard Foster said, Practices are the path of disciplined grace. It's grace because it's free. It's disciplined because there's something for us to do. So you get in the package of those two quotes, what they say. Our aim is total transformation. The way we get there is through a combination of the gift of God and what we do with it. Our willingness to abide and follow the Jesus way of life. Some people resist a message like this and practices because they feel like it boxes them in. Like it squelches spontaneity. You don't have to raise your hand if that's you. Don't worry. <laughs> but here's the thing about that thought. About practices or disciplines, squelching spontaneity, or the flow of the Spirit, or whatever words we put to that. Spontaneous expressions of the way of Jesus are birthed in practicing his way regularly. Imagine a young man learning to play an instrument for the first time, all right? All the musicians in the room are like, yes, a music analogy. Merrily said you would like this, so thank her, not me. <laughs> it was on the cutting room floor until she said, scoop that up, Bill. That's really good. Okay, sidetrack. Okay, so imagine a young man just learning to play an instrument. Young man, it could be a young woman, but I'm going to use pronouns, and I wanted to say, pick one. So, all right. He's learning his instrument, and he can't even dream of, of doing more than plucking out Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, or playing out. I learned trumpet when I was a kid. We'll go with that one, you know, buzzing your lips and doing the keys, playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Much less can we imagine that person joining in with an orchestra, with other musicians and making beautiful music. Even less, improvising his own music on the fly. It just doesn't happen early on. But a musician like this, Miles Davis, can make beautiful music with others. And can improvise really, really good <laughs> because of thousands of hours of practice, right? One of my favorite podcasters said, discipline has liberated his art. Really succinct way of saying all that stuff I was trying to say. <laughs> practice has made it so that he can do more with that talent, with that art, with that ability. So that podcaster is Brett, Brett McKay, and his podcast is called The Art of Manliness. It's really great. And um, he wrote an article about spiritual practices. And in it, he said, spirituality without discipline 
moves in hapless fits and starts. It's sporadic, dependent on fluctuating feelings and external circumstances. It requires little to no effort, but it also produces little to no sustained growth, and thus little to no fruit. For the soul to strengthen, it has to be trained in a consistent, deliberate way. Musicians, that makes sense. Yes, <laughs> they're saying yes. <laughs> so total transformation of the soul is our goal. It kind of rhymes. A consistent set of practices is how we get there. Consistently practicing the way of Jesus will maximize your spiritual growth. It'll yield more fruitfulness. It'll prepare you for the times when you need to join in with others or improvise on your journey with Christ. All right, let's check back with the Bible now. We read some quotes. Let's read quotes from the Bible. <clears throat> I'm going to give you a shotgun blast, a splattering of paint of where the Bible talks about practices, all right? 1 John 3, 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. In 2 Peter chapter 1, he goes through this list of godly qualities and then says, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Paul reminds Timothy of his gifting, tells him to set an example for, belie for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. And then he says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It's even in Psalms, Chapter 111, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. So in a variety of situations, a variety of different people, the call is to practice. Practice, 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 practice. Are you sick of hearing me say that yet? Okay, we're just pounding that in this week. Practice, practice, practice. All right, so what happens if we don't practice? Is there even such a thing as not practicing? Have you ever thought that? Is there such a thing as not practicing? It's a trick question. <laughs> let's go back to our mountain hiking example, all right? And let's say I set a goal. This isn't a real goal of mine. <laughs> so don't call me on it later. Let's say I set a goal, hypothetically, of climbing what's called a 14er. That means a 14,000 foot mountain peak, okay? But this afternoon, church is done, I shake some hands, hug some people, whatever, and I go home, and I grab chips and queso, and I sit on the couch, and I start watching episode after episode of my favorite show. Does that describe the absence of practice, or is there something else going on? Trick question. <laughs> I'm not hiking, I'm not practicing that, I'm not practicing something that would move me toward my goal but I am actually practicing something else, aren't I? Practicing being a couch potato. <laughs> when we don't practice the way of Jesus, we are not neutral. We are becoming something else. In reality, what might seem like coasting and neutral is actually being adrift in the sea of our society. And society does not promote the way of Jesus. Good one, Bill. <laughs> I thought so. <laughs> so. 
So Thomas Merton wrote a book about a group of monks, and they viewed society as a shipwreck from which each individual has to swim for their lives. These were men who believed that to let oneself drift along, passively accepting the tenets and values of what they knew as society was purely and simply a disaster. So they left, <laughs> started a monastery in the desert. They realized, though, that if they didn't practice the way of Jesus, they would drift with society around them. There is no neutral new day. There is no neutral. And society is not in alignment with the way of Jesus. Henry Nouwen uh, adds to Merton's comments. He says, Our society is not a community radiant with the love of Christ, but a dangerous network of domination and manipulation in which we can easily get entangled and lose our soul. When we drift with the practices of society and away from the way of Jesus, our very soul is at risk. The stakes are high, my friends. <laughs> this is a challenging word, but it's a good word. And I say it in love and encouragement. Good. Thank you. Someone said we receive it that way. I sure hope so. Okay, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, talks about this idea of drifting. The author starts the letter by pointing to Jesus, calling him, quote, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And then he says, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. There's a risk of drifting. So do we have an example of someone in the Bible who drifted? I'm curious, what do you think might be an example of someone in the Bible who drifted? Wait, who? Saul? Saul. Jonah? Solomon? Where? Okay. Justin hit the one I was thinking of. That's what I was wondering who might hit the same one I was thinking of. And it was Justin, which is perfect because the intro slide to this whole series is a guy standing on a mountain who happens to look like some sort of mashup of me and Justin. So, I see you, bud. <laughs> this is so perfect. We couldn't have planned that. We didn't. And we couldn't have. Well, we could have. But we didn't. Trust me, we didn't. <laughs> okay, so let's look at the life of Solomon as an example of someone who drifted from very close to the Lord to very far away. It's a sad story, you guys. It's a bummer. But it's in there as a warning to us. Okay, near the beginning of his story, the Bible says that Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. This is a good start. He asks God for wisdom to lead the people. He builds the temple of the Lord. That's a big deal. And then he offers this amazing prayer of dedication for the temple when they dedicate it to the Lord and open it for for worship. Then he blesses the people of Israel. And what he says to them is, let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments. That's what it said about Solomon, who walked in the statutes of David his father. Okay. It's an awesome blessing and encouragement he gives to the people not to drift, to stay wholly true but then we get to later in Solomon's life, and it says that he loved many foreign women from the nations. 
This is exactly what God commanded them not to do, is marry women from foreign nations because he knew that if they did that, it would turn their hearts away from God to their gods. But it says that Solomon clung to these in love. I had that up there. Solomon clung to these wives in love. He didn't want to give them up. It says that his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord. The very place where he starts his story, the very thing he encourages the people to do, stay wholly true to the Lord, he doesn't do. Here comes the punchline. Are you ready? We find out that the Lord is very angry with Solomon about this drifting away. And it says that the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, I will surely tear the kingdom from you. Remember what I said at the beginning, you become what you practice. Solomon drifted away from being wholly true to the Lord. And what did he become? Just another king. Like all the kings of the world. He's not God's king anymore, living God's way. It cost him a great price. An interesting thing about him, he was a man of tremendous wisdom. You probably know that. Did you read your Bible? Good job. It turns out wisdom doesn't keep you from drifting. Didn't work for him anyways. Godly practices keep you from drifting. And actually drawing a line in the sand when it comes to ungodly practices is what keeps you from drifting. We're not neutral. We talked about that. It's one or the other. Okay, that's a warning about drifting from the Lord. The next thing I want to look at is this idea of a hollow emptiness. Back to the book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. He describes his journey of learning to practice the way of Jesus. And he shares how he felt before embarking on the journey. You know, his, his before and after, this is the before. And I want you to listen really carefully to how he describes how he felt. He said, I feel like a ghost, half alive, half dead more numb than anything else, flat, one-dimensional. I live with an undercurrent of anxiety that rarely goes away and a tinge of sadness. But mostly, I just feel blah spiritually, empty. It's like my soul is hollow. Can anyone relate to that? Does anyone ever feel flat, hollow, or empty, or if you're really good at Christianese, you say, I'm in a dry season. Does anybody feel that way right now? Come on, it's common after two years of this COVID stuff. It's common. You're not alone. But what contributes to the empty, hollow feeling? How do we get there? What happened? Well, in his book, he continues. He says, it's not that we have anything against God or depth or the spirit. We like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar. We're more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. John Ortberg Ortberg put it this way, and Marilee says this is a really good one. 
So, so follow along. <laughs> That's in my notes. That's why I shared it with you. And when she watches it later, it'll be a nice little, hey, Marilee, love you. Okay, we're talking about getting, what gets us to that empty, hollow feeling? How do we get to that point? And, and this guy puts it this way. The great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, although some are doing that. The great danger is not that we will, we will renounce our faith. It's that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle, settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. If you're honest with yourself, does that describe the state of your soul? Are you busy, distracted, preoccupied? Or are you living a deep and meaningful life abiding in Jesus? It's a good question to stop and ask. It really is. All right, we have to stop for a second, take a cold, hard look at something. If you have one of these with you, just pull it out. Yes, thank you. I'll pause. Seriously, go ahead and pull it out. <laughs> Pulling out my smartphone. If you're listening, audio only later. I have my smartphone in my hand. Look at that thing for a second. Don't answer the text message <laughs> that you received during church. Stay with me. This is a risky move that I'm making. A risky illustration, isn't it? <laughs> All right. There are endless apps, posts, retweets, whatever TikToks are called. I don't even know what they're called. Um, it's an endless supply of those things in your hand right now. Okay? We have to take a cold, hard look at this thing that's in our pocket or our purses and ask ourselves, what's going on here? You know, we think of it as a tool at our disposal, and it is, but something else is going on too. Um, oops, I don't have a slide for this. <laughs> Here's a quote. I don't know who said it, but it's out there. If it's free, you're the product. Oh boy. So all the apps on your phone are not there to provide you with a service. They're there to sell a product. You are the product. Yikes. Mark, John Mark Homer says, it's your attention that's for sale, along with your peace of mind. A guy named James Williams called the tech industry the largest, most standardized form of attentional control in human history. There's a machine out there, and your attention is under siege for profit as a part of this machine. Giving your attention comes with a price. If you make a regular practice of using this device and all the apps of buying that are vying for your attention, you will become something as a result. Some Microsoft researcher person said that continuous partial attention is our new normal. What, what does that mean? <laughs> Let me pause and tell you what that means. If you spend so much time in those fast-moving apps, scrolling, feel the vibration or hear the beep and you pull out the thing, what it creates in your brain is a lack of ability to give undivided attention. That's what it means. 
Instead, you're in a state of continuous partial attention, talking to Justin, but not exactly, because this thing has a part of my attention too, if we make a practice of using the phone in that way. Okay, you can put your phones away. You already did. Oh, good. I'm going to put mine away too. I don't want this thing buzzing up there while I'm trying to talk to you guys, right? Practice what you preach, Menser. Come on. I can't wait till the next time I'm talking to somebody and I pull out my phone and you guys are like, practice the way of Jesus, Bill. You know what? You're welcome to keep me accountable. Like I said, I'm a man in process. All right. So I'm not saying that phones are evil, okay? I'm not telling you to throw it in the trash. I'm not going to put a basket up here and start collecting your phones as part of the altar call, all right? I grew up as a, as a teenager hearing a lot of messages about how secular music was bad, and I, I threw away and rebought many CDs in my day, okay? So that's not where this is going. <laughs> but here's what I am saying. You are responsible for managing your practices. And I'm also saying this. Society is built to encourage you to practice the way of the phone, not the way of Jesus. Remember, we talked about drifting with society. Society is built to encourage you to practice the way of phone, the phone, not the way of Jesus. Comer asks us, what is all this distraction, addiction, and pace of life doing to our souls? He points out that we can often feel distant from God, but God is not the problem because God is omnipresent. That means he's everywhere. He's not distant from you anywhere you go. But it's our awareness of God that's the problem when we feel distance. Here's another one. This is another Bill quote. Some of us are losing our capacity to give God our undivided attention. And it's having an effect on our souls. Spoken from experience. <laughs> we make a practice of living the way of the phone. To a certain degree, we will lose our capacity to give God our undivided attention. I know, because I've struggled with it. You sit down to pray, and two seconds later, yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, or even if it doesn't go off. In that, it's in your pocket. It's in your purse. It's right there with you. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> so John Mark Comer describes going through a journey and a process of putting godly practices into his life, changing his schedule and his priorities, and setting up his life to practice the way of Jesus. Remember, he talked about feeling hollow and empty and flat and, and out of touch with God. When he gets to the end of a few years of doing this, here's what he says. I feel God again. I feel my own soul. He was, he's a pastor. He was when he wrote the book. A pastor of a big church, all right? It, it can happen. If our practices are set up a certain way, we can lose touch with God and our own soul and not even know where we're at. But his journey can happen too. We can turn it around and put godly practices into our life and our schedule and we can get back to where we feel God's presence and we know where we're at spiritually. He found a cure for the hollow, empty feeling. 
So can we, if we take time to practice the way of Jesus. The next three weeks, I'll give you some specific ideas of practices you can put in your life. You know, but just this week, I wanted you to get this message. We become what we practice, and I wanted you to ask yourself these questions. Are my practices causing me to drift away from God? Are my practices hollowing out my soul? And are my practices draining my ability to give God undivided attention? Kathy's going to come and wrap it up this morning. Thanks for a little conviction there. Appreciate that. Anybody else say amen to some of that? Yeah. So let's just take a minute. Should close your eyes. And let's ask God, what's an area of my life that I've been drifting? Is there an area in my life? Is, it, is there a part of my soul just feeling hollow? Or what's draining me from keeping my focus on God? And so we're just going to lift that up. So we just say, Father, I just thank you that you want what's best for us and that you're calling us to a higher place. Whatever you revealed to us this week, that we would put it in your hands this week, that we would seek you so that we wouldn't drift along, but that we would be fully alive in you to live the life that you've called us to live with abundance, with your abundant love that we would pour out to others. In Jesus' name, amen.